Part One, Chapter Three, of Victory: An Island Tale, by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Human nature, being what it is, having a silly side to it as well as a mean side, there were not a few who pretended to be indignant on no better authority than a general propensity to believe every evil report and a good many others who found it simply funny to call Heist the spider, behind his back, of course. He was as serenely unconscious of this as of his several other nicknames. But soon people found other things to say of Heist. Not long afterwards he came very much to the fore in larger affairs. He blossomed out into something definite. He filled the public eye as the manager on the spot of the Tropical Belt Coal Company, with offices in London and Amsterdam, and other things about it that sounded and looked grandiose. The offices in the two capitals may have consisted, and probably did, of one room each. But at that distance, out east there, all this had an air. We were more puzzled than dazzled, it is true, but even the most sober-minded among us began to think that there was something in it. The Tesmans appointed agents, a contract for government mail-boat secured, the era of steam beginning for the islands, a great stride forward, high stride. And all this sprang from the meeting of the cornered Morrison and of the wandering heist, which may or may not have been the direct outcome of a prayer. Morrison was not an imbecile, but he seemed to have got himself into a state of remarkable haziness as to his exact position towards Heist. For, if Heist had been sent with money in his pocket, by a direct decree of the Almighty, in answer to Morrison's prayer, then there was no reason for special gratitude, since obviously he could not help himself. But Morrison believed both in the efficacy of prayer and in the infinite goodness of Heist. He thanked God with odd sincerity for his mercy, and could not thank Heist enough for the service rendered as between man and man. In this, highly creditable, tangle of strong feelings, Morrison's gratitude insisted on Heist's partnership in the great discovery. Ultimately, we heard that Morrison had gone home through the Suez Canal in order to push the magnificent coal idea personally in London. He parted from his brig and disappeared from our ken. But we heard that he had written a letter, or letters, to Heist, saying that London was cold and gloomy, that he did not like either the men or things, that he was as lonely as a crow in a strange country. In truth, he pined after the Capricorn. I don't mean only the tropic, I mean the ship too. Finally, he went into Dorsetshire to see his people, caught a bad cold, and died with extraordinary precipitation in the bosom of his appalled family. Whether his exertions in the city of London had enfeebled his vitality, I don't know, but I believe it was this visit which put life into the coal idea. Be it as it may, the Tropical Belt Coal Company was born very shortly after Morrison, the victim of gratitude and his native climate, had gone to join his forefathers in a Dorsetshire churchyard. Heist was immensely shocked. He got the news in the Malaccas through the Tesmans, and then disappeared for a time. It appears that he stayed with a Dutch government doctor in Aboyna, 
a friend of his who looked after him for a bit in his bungalow. He became visible again, rather suddenly, his eyes sunk in his head, and with a sort of guarded attitude, as if afraid someone would reproach him with the death of Morrison. Naive heist, as if anybody would. Nobody amongst us had any interest in men who went home. They were all right. They did not count any more. Going to Europe was nearly as final as going to heaven. It removed a man from the world of hazard and adventure. As a matter of fact, many of us did not hear of this death till months afterwards, from Schomberg, who disliked Heist gratuitously and made up a piece of sinister whispered gossip. That's what comes of having anything to do with that fellow. He squeezes you dry like a lemon, then chucks you out, sends you home to die. Take warning by Morrison. Of course, we laughed at the innkeeper's suggestions of black mystery. Several of us heard that Heist was prepared to go to Europe himself to push on his coal enterprise personally. But he never went. It wasn't necessary. The company was formed without him, and his nomination of manager in the tropics came out to him by post. From the first he had selected Samburan, or Round Island, for the central station. Some copies of the prospectus issued in Europe, having found their way out east, were passed from hand to hand. We greatly admired the map which accompanied them for the edification of the shareholders. On it, Sam Byrne was represented as the central spot of the Eastern Hemisphere, with its name engraved in enormous capitals. Heavy lines radiated from it in all directions through the tropics, figuring a mysterious and effective star. Lines of influence, or lines of distance, or something of that sort. Company promoters have an imagination of their own. There's no more romantic temperament on earth than the temperament of a company promoter. Engineers came out, coolies were imported, bungalows were put up on Samburan. A gallery driven into the hillside, and actually some coal got out. These manifestations shook the soberest minds. For a time, everybody in the islands was talking of the tropical belt coal, and even those who smiled quietly to themselves were only hiding their uneasiness. Oh, yes, it had come, and anybody could see what could be the consequences, the end of the individual trader, smothered under a great invasion of steamers. We could not afford to buy steamers, not we, and Heist was the manager. You know Heist, enchanted Heist. Oh, come, he has been no better than a loafer around here as far back as any of us can remember. Yes, he said he was looking for facts. Well, he's got hold of one that will do for all of us, commented a bitter voice. That's what they call development, and be hanged to it, muttered another. Never was Heist talked about so much in the tropical belt before. Isn't he a Swedish baron or something? He? A baron? Get along with you. For my part, I haven't the slightest doubt that he was. While he was still drifting amongst the islands, enigmatical and disregarded, like an insignificant ghost, he told me so himself on a certain occasion. It was a long time before he materialized in this alarming way into the destroyer of our little industry. 
Heist, the enemy. It became the fashion with a good many to speak of Heist as the enemy. He was very concrete, very visible now. He was rushing all over the archipelago, jumping in and out of local mail packets as if they had been tram cars, here, there, and everywhere, organizing with all his might. This was no mooning about. This was business. And this sudden display of purposeful energy shook the incredulity of the most skeptical, more than any scientific demonstration of the value of these coal outcrops could have done. It was impressive. Schomberg was the only one who resisted the infection. Big, manly in a portly style, and profusely bearded, with a glass of beer in his thick paw, he would approach some table where the topic of the hour was being discussed, would listen for a moment, and then come out with his invariable declaration. All this is very well, gentlemen, but he can't throw any of his coal dust in my eyes. There's nothing in it. Why, there can't be anything in it. A fellow like that for manager? Phew! Was it the clairvoyance of imbecile hatred, or mere stupid tenacity of opinion, which ends sometimes by scoring against the world in a most astonishing manner? Most of us can remember instances of triumphant folly, and that ass Schomberg triumphed. The TBC Company went into liquidation, as I began by telling you. The Tesmans washed their hands of it. The government cancelled those famous contracts, the talk died out, and presently it was remarked here and there that Heist had faded completely away. He had become invisible, as in those early days when he used to make a bolt clear out of sight in his attempts to break away from the enchantment of these isles, either in the direction of New Guinea or in the direction of Saigon, to cannibals or to cafes. The Enchanted Heist Had he at last broken the spell? Had he died? We were too indifferent to wonder over much. You see, we had on the whole liked him well enough, and liking is not sufficient to keep going the interest one takes in a human being. With hatred, apparently, it is otherwise. Schomberg couldn't forget Heist, the keen, manly Teutonic creature, was a good hater. A fool often is. Good evening, gentlemen. Have you got everything you want? So, good, you see. What was I always telling you? Ah, there was nothing in it. I knew it. But what I would like to know is, what became of that Swede? He put his stress on the word Swede as if it meant scoundrel. He detested Scandinavians generally. Why? Goodness only knows. A fool like that is unfathomable. He continued, It's five months or more since I have spoken to anybody who has seen him. As I have said, we were not much interested. But Schomberg, of course, could not understand that. He was grotesquely dense. Whenever three people came together in his hotel, he took good care that Heist should be with them. I hope the fellow did not go and drown himself, he would add, with a comical earnestness, that ought to have made us shudder. Only our crowd was superficial, and did not apprehend the psychology of this pious hope. Why? Heist isn't in debt to you for drinks, is he? Somebody asked him once, with shallow scorn. 
drinks, oh dear no. The innkeeper was not mercenary, Teutonic temperament seldom is, but he put on a sinister expression to tell us that Heist had not paid perhaps three visits altogether to his establishment. This was Heist's crime, for which Schomberg wished him nothing less than a long and tormented existence. Observe the Teutonic sense of proportion, and nice forgiving temper. At last, one afternoon, Schomberg was seen approaching a group of his customers. He was obviously in high glee. He squared his manly chest with great importance. Gentlemen, I have news of him. Who? Why, that Swede. He's still in San Buren. He's never been away from it. The company is gone, the engineers are gone, the clerks are gone, the coolies are gone, everything's gone, but there he sticks. Captain Davidson, coming by from the westward, saw him with his own eyes. Something white on the wharf, so he steamed in and went ashore in a small boat. Heist, right enough. Put a book into his pocket, always very polite. Been strolling on the wharf and reading. I remain in possession here, he told Captain Davidson. What I want to know is what he gets to eat there. A piece of dried fish now and then, what? That's coming down pretty low for a man who turned up his nose at my table d'hote. He winked with immense malice. A bell started ringing, and he led the way to the dining room as if into a temple, very grave, with the air of a benefactor of mankind. His ambition was to feed it at a profitable price, and his delight was to talk of it behind its back. It was very characteristic of him to gloat over the idea of Heist having nothing decent to eat. End chapter 3